and then his nature up really an apologetics uh, series where we're trying to unpack some of the big questions that come with, okay, you say there's a God. Well, what about fill in the blank? And so we've covered, is there even a God? Uh, does God have a plan for my life? What about pain and suffering? Which uh, not so surprisingly, I preached on pain and suffering last Sunday and then had a root canal. So now I'm, pr- I'm going to be preaching on having a brand new truck and we'll see what happens next week. Are these yours? Those Diane's. Oh, Diane's. Wonderful. Oh, thank you. All right, Diane, you can have those back. All right. I hope most of you who are laughing can relate. Otherwise, God will punish you. Um, Oh, that's so much better. All right. So what we're doing is we're looking at all these different questions uh, regarding apologetics, the nature of God, understanding God, trying to dive into. And instead of just going, well, the culture shouldn't ask these questions or even we as Christians shouldn't be asking these questions. Let's give some validity to it. Let's look at the scriptures, try and unpack some of those things and see if we can find uh, some truth. So this morning, we're tackling a major roadblock for those who might be investigating Christianity. But, but even more than that, for you and I, as we watch the news, as we read history, as we understand things, um, there. Uh, so I'm going to give this preface right now. There's going to be some topics that I throw out that may or may not be good for kids. I uh, just want to make sure you all know that uh, ahead of time, okay? Uh, because we are going to dig into some pretty deep, uh, unfortunate things that happen in our world. The question that we're wrestling today is, why is the God of the New Testament so different than the God of the Old Testament? Uh, A question that is very frequently posed, or better phrased, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean? You ever wondered that? Have you ever, has anyone ever wondered that themselves or heard that phrase to them, right? Why is God in the Old Testament, you read through from, from Genesis all the way through and you go, man, God has got a temper. Like, he is mean. Why is that? And so, uh, and before we as Christians get defensive or start spewing out our answers to that very real uh, question, we need to evaluate such claims against what the Bible says to those uh, objections and see if there's some merit in them. And so that's what we're doing this morning as a church uh, family. In his book, The God Delusion, atheist Richard Dawkins, if you've heard of Richard Dawkins, here's what he writes. He writes a scathing rendition of God as he sees him in the Old Testament. Dawkins says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, an infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sodomagistic, sodomisogynistic, capriciously manipulant bully. Such words are echoed by Charles Templeton who also states the God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practicing Christians. 
His justice is, by modern standards, outrageous. He is biased, querulous, vindictive, and jealous of his own prerogatives. I must admit, when I hear people making such claims about God, I get defensive. Because such claims are uh, making a claim about God's character. Making claims about who he is, and, and even more than just who he is, describing his heart. And so I find myself even getting a little bit defensive when I hear these things. But the claims that are mentioned, we must ask if we are to be non-emotionally charged is, are those claims true? Are we willing to look into the scriptures and answer those questions? Or are they missing something? Mark chapter 10, verse 18, if you have your Bibles, we are going to fly through a ton of scriptures. And I apologize now again with my preface. I can't pronounce things very well because most of my mouth isn't working. So some things are going to become muddled and just run with that. Here's what Mark chapter 10, verse 18 tells us. Only God is truly good. That's what the Bible says. And when I hear this verse, I immediately think of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, who says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, to understand some of these apologetic questions, when we decide to dig into the deeper idea of who God is and his nature, there's some riddle behind it. There's certainly some academic. Uh, there's certainly some intellectual. There's an enormous amount of faith. There's a lot of what the Bible claims. And then we test what the Bible claims to be true. We look at uh, things that happen in our world held up against the backdrop of Scripture. And so I want to invite you this morning, let's analyze this and see if there is a basis for God being mean throughout the Old Testament. Now, I was kind of complaining to Sandy this morning. There have been thousands and thousands and thousands of books written on every single apologetic topic. We can't merely cover all of that in a half an hour. No, you don't want it. So all I'm going to do is wet the whistle, if you would, so that you can dive deeper and give you some principles behind that. Does that make sense to everyone? So you might walk away going, yeah, but you didn't fully answer my question. I acknowledge that this morning. You're probably not going to get every single one of your questions answered. But let's start with the flood and then go from there to see if there is a justifiable pattern to God's judgment. Because as Christians, we're not claiming that there is not judgment in the Old Testament. What we're going to explain this morning is there's a justifiable reason and pattern for the judgment rather than just some deity who's up somewhere in heaven that's knee-jerk reaction is to punish his people. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, so let's jump in to the flood. First, God is often attacked for, quote, killing all the innocent people and even 
children in the flood. Uh, we've heard that before. Uh, people will bring that up. Like, how could a loving God truly be so good and loving and powerful if he would kill women and children uh, and innocent people in the flood? But judging scripture by scripture, we read from Romans 3.23 that there is truly no one who's innocent. We, again, you might look at this in your own life, right? You go throughout your day, you meet people, you work with people, you interact with people, neighbors, coworkers, friends, family, people at school, and you go, they're innocent. They're really nice. They have a great marriage. But the Bible says that the heart of mankind, women, men, children, there is nothing that's even good in us. So that's number one. It also says that we all die. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and in Romans 6, 23, we see a repercussion for our actions. That something has to happen based on our sinful nature. Second, let's see what, the, what brought such judgment on the people before the flood. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn yours on on your phone. There's also several Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can grab uh, one of those. This is what we see before there is judgment of the flood. Here's what the Bible says. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, man, if you're new to the Bible, is a substitute for just humanity, but nevertheless saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord looked down and saw that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, over and over and over without interruption, nothing but evil. Think about this. Every intention and thought was evil at the time. Imagine the murders and the rapes and the child sacrifices and the cannibalism and so on. This was happening continually without interruption. And this is what the Lord sees. And this was roughly about 120 years before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And so we see that even in the midst of horrific evil, that if we were to see what was going on before the flood on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and, and CBS, if we were to watch video coverage of these things going on, we would go, it doesn't matter. Someone needs to drop a nuclear bomb on those people. Look at what they are doing. That would be our reaction. And yet 120 years pass. 120 years of patience, allowing time for repentance and change. Not a knee-jerk reaction, not immediate judgment, but loving, patient, kind, understanding, constantly forgiving God. God even called Noah to be a preacher of the righteousness, and yet people refused to listen and they continued to murder and rape and on and on and on literally holding up a hand to the voice of hope. And so God went so far as to offer salvation. He provided the Old Testament version of salvation. He provided an ark for hope through Noah and his family, and yet others didn't come. 
They refused the life raft, if you would. Only Noah's family was saved. And the means of salvation and preaching and righteousness and God's patience, it was there and yet everyone refused and then received their judgment. If you unpack the scriptures, this gives great detail to it. I invite you to read the story and then read the corresponding verses that are associated with this. It will give you understanding of how an incredibly kind and loving and patient God that we see before the flood. Second, let's move on to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to read in Genesis chapter 18. <clears throat> if, you, if you don't know the story, um, it's an interesting one. Uh, starts in Genesis 18, and I'll pick it up in verse 20. I'm going to go up to verse 16 instead. Let's go up to verse 16. Then the men got out, got up from their meal and looked out toward Sodom. As they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and the families to keep them to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going to see if their actions <clears throat> are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Are you really going to do that? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it just for their sake? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? Why would you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? Surely you wouldn't do that. Surely not the judge of all the earth. Do what is right. And the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again, since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord. Even though I am but dust and ashes, suppose there are only 45 righteous people that ask, uh, rather than 50, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham, who's starting to feel pretty confident at this point, pressed his question further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Please don't be angry with me, Lord. Abraham pleaded, let me speak. Suppose, <clears throat> Suppose there are only 30 righteous people found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I only find 30. Then Abraham said, since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me. If I speak one more time, suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, 
then I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. And when the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way and Abraham returned to his tent. Complete side note, can you imagine Abraham? <laughs> like he got out of there with his life. <laughs> I mean, constantly going, mm, one more thing, judge. I don't know if you've ever been to court, but you speak to the judge when you're spoken to from the judge, not the other way around. Abraham asks if God would sweep away the righteous with the wicked. He asks the Lord, if there's 50, will you spare it? He says, yes. 40 righteous, will you spare it? He says, yes. 30 righteous, will you spare it? He says, yes. 20 righteous, will you spare it? He says, yes. 10 righteous, will you spare it? He says, yes. This reveals how wicked and sinful the people were. They were not without excuse and judgment was coming. But this also reveals something very, very interesting about the flood. If God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah for only 10 righteous people, then would God have spared the earth if only 10 people were righteous before the flood? And it appears that he did. It appears that the, the deeper we dive into the atrocities on the surface that we see in the Old Testament, we see an incredible, merciful, grace-filled, loving, patient heart of God. That's what we see. Methuselah and Lamech, Noah's father and grandfather, may have been those two that made up ten, along with Noah, his wife, and his three sons. That makes the ten. Of course, there may have been others who were righteous as well up unto the flood, but at the time of the flood, we can assume that there were only eight on the boat. Methuselah and Lamech had died just before the flood. And so Lot and his family numbered less than 10 in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God provided a means of salvation for them. You can read this story for yourself. He didn't need to provide a means of salvation. He didn't have to rescue. But he did. The angels came and helped them get to safety. And it shows God's patience. It shows his mercy. It shows forgiveness. It shows love. Supremely consistent with the New Testament. Finally, quickly, let's look at Samson and the sons of Ashkelon. Uh, you can open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. The Bible naysayers will decry Samson's murder of 30 men of Ashkelon descent, uh, which is recorded in Judges 14. So let's turn there. Judges chapter 14, verse 19 says this, then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, Samson. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened and he went back home to live with his father and his mother. 
the naysayers will decry this murder of 30 men, but they overlook a number of important things. Let's unpack this briefly. First of all, Ashkelon was a city of the Philistines, a people who persistently, on a regular basis, continually oppressed and brutalized Israel. On a regular basis, they were modern-day terrorists. The Philistines were notorious for their idol worship of the false gods of Dagon, Ashtoreth, who is the spouse of Baal, and Beelzebub. Just constant demonic false god worship. That's exactly what's going on. And the rituals of Ashtoreth typically included temple prostitution. It was a regular thing. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't um, something where it was a profession by choice. It was forced temple prostitution. Those women didn't have a choice. And the 30 companions of Samson were of Ashkelon descent. And they clearly lived up to their reputation of violence and cruelty. And when challenged by Samson's riddle and bet, they threatened to murder his fiance. You can read this story all throughout this book. And then to destroy his father's home, his father's home by fire. If she didn't get Samson to reveal the riddle, which she did. And the acts that Samson carried out that day that we read about in the Old Testament, we're just grabbing these three nuggets of stories to kind of give us a broad brushstroke of understanding uh, of God's quote-unquote mean nature in the Old Testament. These acts were carried out of judgment by God on the people of Ashkelon, but they were part of a larger sweeping story of God using Samson and others as weapons to stomp out evil. We don't like it because it's violent. But these people were weapons of justice against blasphemous and evil People. And the story of Samson ends with him killing thousands of Philistines, causing the building that they were in to collapse. Crazy story. I, I've always said if someone were to make a real, like, no-holds-barred movie of the Bible, it'd be the most X-rated band movie ever made. And this is what's going on. And from the above examples, from these three examples, what we're going to understand now to help you in your discussions with friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, but also in your own heart, is we see that there are six distinct patterns emerging from the judgments of God. Six patterns that we see all throughout. If you go to all the times in the Old Testament where God appears that he's casting judgment, he's mean-hearted, he's not patient, he's not kind, we're going to see exactly this. Here is number one if you're taking notes. Number one, God declares an annihilation form of judgment to stomp out a critical problem. This always happens. If you go through all of them throughout the Old Testament, this is what happened. God declares an annihilation form of judgment. He says, here is what's coming and here is why. Your hearts are hardened. You're doing this to my people. 
You're living in sin. You're, li you're, you're living in evilness. You're worshiping these things. Across the board, God declares an annihilation is coming to stomp out a critical problem. Number two, the judgments are for public recognition of extreme sin. These are not to be done in private. They're not to be done behind closed doors. This is for everyone to see. God is not one of those politicians who declares something in the middle of the night and hopes the news cycle just brushes by it. God says, I'm going to put this on national TV. Everyone's going to see it, and there's a reason for it. I'm not hiding behind this. My character, my heart can stand on its own. And it's for public recognition of extreme sin because I want everyone to take notice. That's step two. Step three, judgment is preceded by a warning and or long periods of exposure to the truth and an extreme time to repent. Yes, judgment comes, but let's not allow ourselves or the world culture to catapult us just to judgment before we don't recognize the fact that God says that I'm going to give an enormous amount of time for reconciliation, repentance, and for you to get your heart right before the judgment comes. And right when you think the time is up, I'm going to give you more time. Right when you think, I I'm out of time, I'm going to give you another day. I'm going to give you another week. I'm going to give you another year. Some of you in this room should be praising God that he gave you another year. Amen. That he didn't cast judgment when he ought to. I'm one of them. I thank God every day he didn't give up on me. that he was kind and patient with me until I got my act together and realized he is the truth. But every time we see that there's a long waiting period so that people can be exposed to the truth, the, the Bible says so that they can be without question and that they could have some time to repent. But God goes further. Again, this is to help you, or if you're watching online, this is help you to understand and to read as you spend time in your readings in the Old Testament to understand God's heart. But also if you have friends that, that want to converse with you, this is not to convince them. Remember, it's not about being right, but it's just to have some understanding because God doubles down on it. Number four, any and all quote unquote innocent, and we talked about that in Romans 3, 23, but nevertheless, let's use culture's words. Any and all innocent adults are given a way of escape with their families. Sometimes all are given a way to avoid judgment via repentance or leaving a particular region. They're told you, you can flee. Things are about to get really bad in this region, so go get somewhere else. It should be noted that expulsion from a land was the most common judgment, not extermination. It was being kicked out of land because being kicked out of land meant you didn't have any food, you didn't have any water, you didn't have any safe place to stay. And this pattern goes all the way back to the ejection of Adam and Eve in Eden. It's a common theme that runs throughout. But God gives a period of time so that all of those quote-unquote innocent can get out. 
can be saved. Number five, someone is almost always saved or, and or redeemed from the evil culture that is being judged. Almost always. Every story. So here's how I spent my week. Holding my face and reading horror stories in the Old Testament. Some of you have like asked me this morning, hey, how was your week? I'm like, awful. It's miserable. I read like destruction stories and my face almost broke. Like it's been rough. But what I see amidst the horrificness of these stories is that even a small sliver of redemption is redemption. That's the heart of God. And number six, after all of this has happened, after all the warnings, after all the waiting periods, after all the patience, after all of God going, please turn towards me. I'm begging you to turn towards me. I'll even give you another 120 years to turn towards me. The judgment of God falls. The objects of God's judgment in the Old Testament is always involved with gross sin committed acts of great evil such as ritualistically burning their own children to death to please their false gods. If you are God, how do you put up with that? If you have the power today, What would you do? Amazingly, instead of immediately destroying the people involved in these things, the, action, the opposite happens. The scriptures convey that God had incredible patience and he waited until the full measure of their deeds were completed. God's not different. It's heresy to say that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. That they're two different gods. That somehow God changed his ways, that he grew up, that he matured. And that he decided, man, I was, I was super harsh way back when and as I've gotten older in my years, now I'm, I'm kinder. No. He's the same God. There is always an answer and there's always hope. And in both cases, people have or had the opportunity to get back into a right relationship with him. Countless opportunities to do so. 
And in both cases, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God judges sin. That's what he does, friends. God judges sin. We see mercy and patience to be found through God's vessel Noah with his preaching for years and Abraham with his pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. Even Lot urged the people to not be so wicked. And just as the case was in the Old Testament, so it is today that we have patience and mercy available to us. That it's never too late. It's never too late to go, man, uh, you've given me another week. You gave me another year. You gave me another decade. You've been so patient with me. But do not forget the final step is judgment. For you, for me, for our neighbors, our friends, for those who know God, to, to, to those who are distant from God, there is judgment, there is sin, there is hell. But that does not mean that the God of the Old Testament is mean. Dan is going to unpack, is Christianity too narrow? He'll answer some of that. You see, God has provided a means of salvation. He did it in the Old Testament, and he did it in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. He gave the boat through Jesus. He gave the new land through Jesus. He gave the escape through Jesus. Jesus is that hope. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. You want to see the heart of God? You want to see the patience of God? You want to see how far he is willing to go to save you? How far he is willing to go to give you another chance? It's the table. It's going and taking some simple grape juice that Mimi got at Safeway and some normal bread. We even have gluten bread. It's normal. But it is special and it is powerful because we are told as often as we partake in this table, we remember the goodness and the patience and the love, how far he would go to save you. To give you another chance and another chance and another chance. For some of you this morning, maybe you have received 50 chances. You have said, Lord, I, I accept you again today, uh, afresh and anew. I will never fill in the blank. And guess what? Maybe you need the 51st time. This table says you can have as many chances as you need. That you never wear out your welcome at this table. And it is power to save and to rescue and to change and to enter into your story, to enter into your nightmares, to enter into your struggle is without end. It's the same God of the Old Testament. And he loves you. And he cares deeply about you.
And so this morning, as we go to the table, would you relish that? Would you allow him to envelop you with his arms of love? Would you allow him to remind you how special you are? Would you allow him to, to help you as a parent, to help you as a friend, to help you as a coworker? And if you are far from God, I beg you, give God a chance. Take him up on his promises. Allow him to change your life in ways you've never dreamed of. Allow him to do things that you can never ask or imagine. And then sit back and stand in awe. But whatever you do, don't walk away from the hand that's extended to you this day. Let's pray. And then as we, uh, you guys can go down the sides and then back to your seat up the middle at your own pace. Heather and the team will lead us at your own pace. Uh, don't feel rushed at all. Um, this is your time. So let's pray together. you pursue, 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 pursue. You are relentless in your pursuit of us. You are relentless in your love for us, your patience for us. You're giving us another chance, another chance, another chance, another chance to hear the truth over and over and over and over again. How long, O oh Lord, how long will we turn our back on you and not pursue you with everything we have within our being? To put you at your rightful place, your throne that only you are rightful to occupy. So remind us of that as we approach this table. Remind us of our value. Remind us of our worth in your eyes. That you literally gave it all save one. Thank you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our great God and our living King. We pray this in His name, in His name alone.